Hello, and welcome to Super Psychedelic. In this conversation, we were joined by Tim Sekou and Keith Ferrazzi. Tim mentors and advises startup founders. He also angel invests in psychedelic medicine companies, planet sustainability solutions, and missions that align with his values. And with his organization, One Heart, he helps organize and co-host transformative psychedelic medicine retreats for heart-led leaders. Keith is an American entrepreneur and recognized global thought leader in the relational and collaborative sciences. He's introduced a new transformational operating system that he calls co-elevation that leads to exponential change and value. Tim and Keith recently created Greenlight Psychedelics. They help psychedelic companies leverage best-in-class coaching to maximize individual evolution and team performance. And it was Keith's own significant transformation with plant medicine that led him to invite those within the space to be part of the challenge and transformation of coaching and leading. In this episode, we talked about how and why Greenlight Psychedelics came into existence, how One Heart thinks about people, community, and the modalities that go into the retreats they facilitate, and the importance of integrating and sustaining lessons from psychedelic experiences, and how to create new habits and agreements with yourself. And Keith really opens up about the challenges that he faced growing up and how being vulnerable has really helped him to bridge the space between how he was and how he wanted to be. And how this coaching that they're providing can impact how the workforce of the world creates relationships together. Funny enough, we ended with this noting of that their individual and collective childhood dream was becoming president of the United States. So we asked them what they might re-engineer if they were to find themselves in that seat today. It was an awesome conversation. We really enjoyed it and we hope you do too. Now we bring you Tim and Keith. Tim, Keith, welcome to Super Psychedelic and thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. I'm super excited to uh, to have this conversation with you all today. Yeah. I am too. I'm, I'm, was, this was actually going to be the highlight of my day, truly. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> That's a win already. Nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this is actually a bit of a different and fun kind of conversation for us, getting to have two of you present who both do exciting work separately in this space, but also together. So we'd love to just give you guys uh, the opportunity to introduce the individual work that you do, as well as a little look into the work that you do together. So maybe I'll uh, pass the baton to Keith first to, to get you guys Sure, started. happy to. So just by way of background, um, my day job is that I coach the transformation of some of the world's largest organizations. Um, I came from a very poor background in southwestern Pennsylvania was the son of the crumbling of the steel industry, where my father, who was an immigrant Italian steel worker, was very often jobless. And I swore as a young child that I would grow up someday and I would make a difference in the families of, of those organizations and preserve the integrity of those companies when I saw the steel industry crash. And pinch myself on a daily basis, <clears throat> my team and I um, have grown up to do just that, transforming some of the greatest um, uh, institutions in the world. And what we do is we coach executive teams during this transformation. We feel very strongly that the, the wisdom of transformation is, is, 
is pent up in the teams that lead these organizations. And it's our job to unleash that wisdom and to align it and what we call co-elevate, to commit to a mission, but have this team committed to each other in a very rich and deep way. And we're often with these companies for you know, nine months, two years and more. A number of years ago, I was um, impacted very deeply and personally by the power of psychedelics when I embarked on an ayahuasca journey outside of the United States that changed my life. And subsequent to that, I have grown personally to a level that I could have never done without the augmentation of the medicine, the plant medicine that I was working with. And as a leader, but also as a coach, I, ironically, my organization has thrived while I have thrived as a human. Along the way, Tim actually was with me on that very first journey. Tim and I have embarked upon a joint venture that is creating the kind of work that we bring to the elite of the world's most powerful organizations, to any and all organizations that are committing to transform the world through the power of this medicine in the psychedelic space. And so we wake up every day with the opportunity to, you know, invest in these startups, coach an emerging high growth organization, or sit and help to coach and align some of the unicorns that have emerged in this space that are really making a massive impact on the, uh, on the future of mental well-being. Tim continues to be a co-founder and a partner in another business that he and I stumbled into a number of years ago that changed both of our lives. So Tim, do you wanna talk a little bit about both? As Keith was mentioning, um, on my other job or creation opportunity in this lifetime is with an organization called One Heart. Um, so Keith and I actually met there and One Heart is what we call a human accelerator. Uh, it's an eight-week container where we take founders, leaders, change makers, and let's call it intentional creators of our world and bring them down to Central America and uh, sit with the, the plant ayahuasca um, for about three ceremonies. But around that week-long period that we have in person together, we also introduce them to a, a wide variety of other modalities, including breath work, the typical yoga and meditation, but sweat lodges and other workshops centered around the, the idea of trust and surrender, which is theme and critical for psychedelic experiences, and even self-love, which is something that, let's say, a lot of type A's, including myself in my past career, forgot a lot of and, and, and missed a lot of. So, so that's where I spend a lot of my time pouring my energy into. And as Keith and I met, we both have been impacted tremendously by plant medicine, and we both come from business backgrounds in terms of start, uh, having founded and, and sold our own startups, that we realize that if we can merge what we are really good at, which is the business startup mentoring, advising, and coaching with the industry of psychedelics that truly has the potential to shift the consciousness of the world as an acceleration tool done under the right setting, if we merge those two, like he says, we wake up every day never feeling it's work more than it's like just a blessing and a grateful opportunity to um, to spread our gifts uh, for those who are ready to receive that. I love that word, um, human accelerator. Uh, Tim, when when we first talked, we, we talked a lot about this idea and this concept of, of the betterment of the well. And a lot of what you guys are doing really aligns well with 
Gwella's mission. When we started, we came up with this concept of the plus six. So we wanted to help people go from, you know, a zero, a one, a two, three, to a plus six, because, you know, a lot of the organizations in the psychedelic space were focused on, you know, that, that bottom six. How do we, you know, take people who have, you know, serious disorders and bring them back up to the norm, which is obviously an incredibly powerful and meaningful mission as well. But very few people were focused on that that better betterment of the well angle. I, I, I remember first hearing about that when I was reading about positive psychology. During most of our history, we've essentially in, in psychiatric care studied sick people. And then, you know, we had this realization in you know the 80s or 90s, hang on a second, if we want to make people better, perhaps we should be studying better people or healthy people. And you know, how do we improve those people? So I guess starting with a, a really kind of broad question, through your years of co- both coaching and, you know, one heart and these ceremonies, what have you learned through those years on how do we improve people? How do we um, take good people and, and make them better? Can, before we go there, um, and I know Tim and I both have lots of, we spend eons designing those experiences. So I'd be happy to share in that. But I wanted to, to share something. I was on a panel uh, last week in Miami at Wonderland. And the panel was the future of psychedelics. And Peter, I think I echo your point in the world of human actualization, the world, the world of human elevation has not really matched in business, the worlds of other functions, Uh, finance and accounting has gone through a massive awakening in the history of business through even just the introduction of accounting, let alone today, the introduction of data and analytics, which really, really move the, the, the sphere of measurement to be a dominant component and, and the analytics and data to be a dominant component of what business is today. Um, manufacturing, massive improvements on technology, supply chain, et cetera. If you look at human capital, our manufacturing plants don't look too different. Now, some of the most Progressive organizations, of course, do. But many manufacturing plants don't look too different to the industrial era manufacturing plants of, 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 an, of an older age. And certainly, we believe that part of the reason is the lack of measurable link to financial returns. So are you going to do a well-being investment? I'm hearing more about the subject of investment in well-being today in corporations tied to the great resignation and the challenge of recruitment than I am because anybody ever believed that it was a, an investment in people's productivity. Whereas I have seen in myself the transformation of this single human. And I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm a, I'm a behavioral scientist. I'm not going to extrapolate from a data point of one, but we've seen the studies and we've seen the elevation of individuals using this, these medicines. What if in 10 years, a primary tool of elevating human capital is the introduction of these medicines? What if the addition of these medicines were able to eliminate so much of the messiness of human insecurity that exists and holds back productivity and collaboration? and interdependency and innovation. I think we make it to the stage where this, I know this is a crazy, we, we were asked to be a little bit 
provocative. But what if we get to the stage <laughs> where it's actually psychedelics applied in mass that is the tool that brings human capital elevation into the scientific realm because it becomes truly measurable. So Tim and I believe very strongly that it's not just the medicine, which is of course extraordinarily powerful, but it's also what we call the wraparound services, what I call the wraparound services. Mm -hmm. The wraparound services for me is what I love, why I loved one heart, because it once the medicine opens you up, right? How do you use peer-to-peer -peer coaching to land? How do you augment that with other modalities like breath work, like yoga, like meditation? How do you make sure that the pre-work, the during and the post, I mean, had, had somebody just dropped me into an ayahuasca ceremony on a, on a weekend night and I had driven up, maybe doing a little bit of this dieta thing, did my ayahuasca journey. And then as I've heard in horror stories, people who've woken up the next morning and nobody is there, including the shaman and everybody's gone, right? And that's mm -hmm. their integration plan. Imagine if that's in the worst case, but imagine the best case where we really create a tribe. And I think the big thing that Frozzy Greenlight has focused on and Greenlight Psychedelics focuses on is the power of the tribe, the peer-to-peer -peer support, the healing that comes from each other. And that I think is probably the greatest contributor to transformation that we've ever seen. But Tim, you're, you know, on the bigger scale, you're new to our partnership and you've seen this technology of peer-to-peer -peer support, what we call co-elevation come to life, but I'd ask you your thoughts as well. Especially my work, I mean, I have the blessing and pleasure to be able to witness and, and, and guide and, and hold the hands of many people who are entering into this work. And one of the key things I would summarize to what makes you know these bettering of the well, I would call it fulfillment through empowering um, each of the folks that come through. So what do I mean by that? Um, a lot of this work that we bring people towards, um, an opportunity to kind of press the reset button and really ask themselves, what is it that they want in life? You know, myself included, have the blessing of not having been diagnosed with immense chronic conditions that we get to ask this question, what is it that we want in life outside of being healthy? And a lot of it is fulfillment, joy, um, alignment, happiness, these things that even, let's say, the Buddhist uh, philosophies have always said that we, we, we seek. And so um, through our programming and through our, our maybe our way that we were raised, we didn't really have the opportunity to ask these questions for ourselves. So the medicine gives an opportunity to sort of give us the time and ask these questions for ourselves, plus the supplemental modalities, including breath work and, and sweat lodges, where you go into things that you think you're gonna pass out or die or, or, or what, what not, really uh, realize that there's another side to this door that, or this world that we've grown up in and, and come to understand, that when you start to see this other side and this other possibility, the wheels start turning of like, what is it that we really want in life? And so that's been a lot of reflection on my own journey of like, being intentional with what I want to ask and then ultimately uh, be able to reach this fulfillment is through, through this empowerment. I get to ask all of, all of our work that we, we, we in, our, in, our, in our great integration is we point the, the guru, the wisdom, the teacher back to oneself and, and, and one's heart uh, where all the answers lie. And so it's a lot of this empowerment of, of asking them, you know, one of the big things we ask is, what's the biggest dream you could dream up of in, in a 10 year vision? And, and really feel and believe that it already exists 
and it's already happening for you. And it's very different from what people are used to, but that's exactly the, the um, representation of this empowerment. And when one feels empowered, then uh, be able to reach that feeling of uh, fulfillment in all they do with their relationships, family, where they live, their relationship with their, uh, their friends and community, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to uh, dig, dig a little bit deeper on that idea of both integration, but also I'm just curious around you have these kind of catalytic events and the, the events you're describing are you know, obviously very well structured, days long. They have these ancillary different practices integrated via yoga or breath work. In terms of my experience, you know, I, I think about myself when I go into yoga, you know, incredibly calm and, you know, I'm in the moment in that one hour and I come out and I get back in my car, I'm in traffic again and I'm biting my steering wheel at the first person that cuts me off. And I kind of return into this kind of default mode. What are some of the things that you get people to do to prolong the learnings from that catalytic experience? And I guess, I guess within that, you know, why do some people fall off and why do some people return to those negative practices? I always introduce integration as twofold. Number one is remembering. And number two is what new agreements you want to make with yourself. So number one, remembering. What is it that you truly want to remember and take away? And that's part of the questions we always ask. It's like, if you're gonna take, if you're gonna summarize um, your experience, what is that takeaway so that you can bring back home? So that's number one, remembering. And one thing I always share to help remember is to activate uh, the potency of music. So people have been exposed to a whole new genre of medicine music that we equip them with that helps them tap into that feeling of themselves in ceremony where they felt connected to their higher selves, to their hearts, and that activates that. Secondly, is uh, what new agreements you may want to make with yourself. And so what I always share here and advise here is start small. Start super, super small. So if your intention is to heal your relationship with your family, maybe this new agreement is I'm going to call my mom once a week or I'm going to call my dad uh, every other day. Whatever that is, keep it quite small for a new agreement you might want to make with yourself. And to answer your last question, Peter, the only reason why I see many people falling off the train is, number one, they never were all in. Uh, they kind of wanted the, the dopamine hit or the, the journey experience, the full-blown psychedelic uh, journey, kind of like uh, sacred geometry visuals. Um, and nothing against that. If that's what you want, you, you will probably very much receive that. However, anytime I say someone is going to come into this container, we always say you're coming into an eight-week container, two weeks of preparation, one week of experience, and eight weeks, uh, five weeks of integration afterwards. And if you decide to fall off on just these commitments, even in the five-week integration, the whole experience will fall flat. And we've just seen it over and over, so much so that we say, if you're not gonna join in in our integration, to be in integrity, to welcome you back in the future isn't gonna align. So we can't invite you back in because you didn't even finish the previous work. So that's typically why uh, someone would, would forget. It's that they're not all in and they're not being conscious of like what new agreements they wanna make with themselves, even as small as it is, uh, uh, to, to translate what they've taken away in their ceremony work. And let me, add, let me add something. There's a wonderful AA phrase that says, you don't think your way into a new way of acting, you act your way into a new way of thinking. So we come out of these experiences, whether it's um, you know, a medicine-inspired experience or even a Tony Robbins retreat, and we're inspired for transformation. The question is, what's going to sustain that has to do with your next steps. And it's not just the next step, but it's the next steps. It's, it's eyedroppers. I always call it eyedroppers of change. 
In fact, we document something that we call an HRP, a high return practice. We go to HRP as opposed to calling it a best practice because best practice has become so genericized that it doesn't feel like it's got merit. But we literally measure the practices. I can tell you that if in the middle of a meeting at work, you pause the, the Zoom call or whatever it is, go into breakout rooms for five minutes and ask the question, what should be being said in this room right now that's not being said? Have them open a Google Doc, have them add the answer to that question, then come back into the main room, it reboots the dialogue. That's a high return practice. That very distinct practice has a very high return. If you don't add high return practices to your life or to your team, to your business, you will not feel and therefore sustain the commitment to the transformation. So it's, you know, these big revelations that people go for, even, you know, forget about the psychedelics and forget about the visuals, who cares? It, the downloads, even the downloads are not going to sustain if you don't translate those into a commitment to practice. And the question is, what are those high return practices? So it's, you know, you're, you're essentially building in granular habits at the start that you need to commit to. It's almost like um, you've got these, you know, lagging measures, the goal of, you know, being better, achieving X, Y, Z in your career. But at the time of that kind of catalytic experience, you're building in these leading measures that's going to lead to the lagging measures. So the leading measures would be these kind of granular, you know, X, Y, Z, do these things a day, and you almost don't have to think about it, you kind of build them in. And then over time, you will, you know, inevitably hit that, that lagging measure of the goal. I want to just pick up on something that you guys were alluding to, um, and all that is obviously there's a lot of different places that people will come to these experiences in their lives. So everyone, you know, has that place when they decide for whatever reason they want to engage with these substances, be it recreationally, be it somewhat intentionally, be it for transformational healing. How do you guys go through that process of determining where someone is at and how might you talk to somebody a little bit differently based on those different places in their journey that they're at? So let me make a distinction to the extent to which I am practicing the psychedelic elevation. It's in my, it's in my own life and it's in my evangelization of the impact that it has had on my leadership and my organization and the impact that it has had on others. When I go to uh, hold space, I'm not guiding people through the medicine. That's not my practice. I suspect with as um, much experience as I've had and seen it, I probably could qualify as much as many other people who claim to qualify as, as, a, as a guide. I, I just hold this medicine so sacred. It's not like I'm it's not like I've, you know, I'm 55 years old and I've gone to the doctor's office a lot. I don't claim to be able to practice medicine. And, you know, I really do leave it, leave it to, to the, to those who are truly trained in, in that work. So I just want to make, make clear, Aaron, that I'm not administering, nor am I counseling people in the administration of the medicine. What I am definitely focus on is what we call those wraparound skills and services that augment the use of the medicine in terms of uh, transforming teams and individuals, et cetera. And then our actual business invests in these companies, coaches these companies, um, provides a space by which these companies coach each other 
we believe very much in the in the spirit of the tribe among this community. We don't like to think about competition. We think there's way too much work to be done to be competitive. Yeah, I'll just say on behalf of One Heart's perspective, as we think about where someone is coming in from, um, we actually have you know applications where they kind of share where they're at in their life. And then we also have an interview process where we ask them a lot about what their intentions are coming into this kind of container and this kind of work. Um, and I think it's where, you know, intuitively, energetically, you feel into those answers that come in that you'll be able to tell um, if this person's a, a good fit or not. Um, I would say beyond the, obviously, the medical check-ins and, and, and safety concerns on that, the biggest thing we look for is, is someone willing to go all in and sort of call this trust and surrender game, at least for this eight-week container. And that's typically a really good filter for the types of people we work with, which are the type A's that don't like to give up control. Um, but those who hesitate to lean into the, uh, the all-in are typically the best people to, to help uh, this work through because there's probably something to let go of. So to answer your question in summary, it's a lot of qualitative and intuitive and energetic tuning into to the answers. But some of the questions are, what are the intentions that you have coming into this kind of experience? Um, can you commit to being all-in? And can you commit to trusting and surrendering in that, let's call it 300 people already have gone through this experience and 99% of them have come out transformed fully, uh, could you could you lean into that? So those are some of the questions. Yeah, I, I appreciate the um, the clarification there, Keith. But um, I guess just yeah, one one step further, and I guess, clarifying um, even more that journey that you take people on, is it always is it the same or at least the same framework if somebody has experience with psychedelics or not? Do you implement the same kind of wraparound services for somebody who's maybe had more of an experience in that inner work already versus somebody who's never done that? I, th I think the essence is the same. I think what you mm -hmm. expect from it is different. So one of the great things, and this may be interesting to your listening audience, one of the great things in, in being a facilitator, and I think that all of us are facilitators, I think that all of us are coaches. I wrote a book recently called Leading Without Authority, and it teaches everyone how to be a coach in the relationships around us. Mm -hmm. we, we have relationships that don't necessarily have a social contract where we are the authority to be coach. And yet we do it anyway, usually poorly, like in our spousal relationships, you know, coaching is often... Mm -hmm. Um, goes awry in a spousal relationship. When you're a facilitator or a coach, you've got to lead with the example. And when I'm beginning an exercise of vulnerability with a group that is setting, like at the beginning of a one heart ceremony, part of my job and my superpower is the, is the bringing of vulnerability to the space. And while I promise you, no matter what, the medicine will bring a degree of vulnerability to the space, you can accelerate that with exercises. And I use those exercises in, in our work with teams. So if I'm walking into a, man, into a Fortune 10 manufacturing company and I'm gonna be talking about how important it is to open vulnerably to your peers so that you can develop empathy and therefore trusting relationships, I might lead a conversation with being brought up poor, in southwestern Pennsylvania and what that impact was on me and how it made me struggle as a leader and how it made me scarcity oriented. But 
when I'm with a, a group that's just that's about to be or has just been touched by plant medicine, I might speak about how as a foster father of two children that I gained in my in, in their teens, how much I'm constantly feeling like a failure because I can't, you know, while I do this for a living, I still sometimes can't make that breakthrough. Or I'll speak to the shame of being being brought up gay in a in a very uh, heterosexual blue collar Catholic southwestern Pennsylvania, and what the impact of that was on me and my self esteem and integrity when you would go around lying for your life. So I might meet somebody at a place where I know they're going deeper early than if I were meeting them in an analytical framework of a business context. However, I would say that by the time I'm done with a nine-month program with these teams, Tim will attest, we go as deep sometimes as we do in, in, a, in a plant medicine journey. It just takes a lot longer. I'll, I'll just say, you know, Tim talked about this a second ago, but if you sit in a, you know, a seven-day ayahuasca set, I'm not ayahuasca, seven-day, 10-day Vipassana set, you crack open some pretty big codes. You can also do that in a four-hour psilocybin journey. Not to suggest that one is a replacement or a shortcut for the other, but there are there are multiple ways to get to that space. They just may take a little longer. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is that um, there are people who are much more experienced with the medicine that come into this uh, container, even with first-timers. And yes, the experience is relatively the same um, in terms of the modalities and things we offer. Uh, the biggest thing that I see these uh, more experienced people come in is they're looking for community that speak this mm -hmm. language of the intersection of diving into oneself and having the courage to do so. And then secondly, having the discipline and courage and excitement to then apply it into their everyday lives. And so they believe that they are that and they identify as that. And they're saying, where are the other ones uh, somewhere out in the world? And so that's what, the, through these vulnerability exercises, they're able to bond and, and, and experience such rapid depth of relationship that that's probably what the medicine they really need and are looking for in that kind of experience. Can you touch a little bit on um, the vulnerability exercises themselves? I mean, I think you know most people that I, I talk to with any of these types of events, you know, there's always this kind of you know natural hesitancy at the start. They kind of you know even with business um, you know conferences or something like that, and you know a facilitator would say we're going to go around the room and and share something, and there's this kind of freezing of people um, immediately. Now, what is it in us that recoils from that? And why is it so important, particularly at the start, to go through these exercises? The, the answer is other versus us. Think of a bridge to an island. That island is the relationship that are most productive, that, that make the teams function with the highest proficiency, that, that give you the greatest joy, that change the world. And that bridge is, is empathy right, is that connectivity, that sense of us and belonging. And what's the key that opens the gate to that bridge? It's vulnerability. It's the accelerant. Why it's important? I mean, Brene Brown has done a beautiful job of putting her whole career on studying the correlation of vulnerability to those kind of, that kind of opening and outcomes. Now, why does it scare the hell of us and create open sphincter panic? Um, because... <laughs> Um, 
the very same thing could go in the other direction of creating shame and dissonance and um, rejection. That's the fear, isn't it? I mean, the fear is if I share pe with people who I am, they won't love me. I'll be ostracized. And that's how we were brought up. And that's the insecurity of, of our, of our you know, primary upbringing. Um, if, you know, if I was to share at a young age what I was thinking in fifth grade, would my you know, Catholic school have felt the same way about me as they did when I kept my sexuality to myself? The importance of, of it to, as an end state is clear. Getting there in an accelerated fashion feels risky, and that's the role that not just professionals need to fill. That's why I wrote the book, Leading Without Authority. My intention was getting all of us to play the role of facilitator in our lives to achieve those kind of, of bridges and opening those bridges. I would say that, um, especially in a plant medicine or let's say ayahuasca retreat like that, it's almost the best time to do it because many of our intentions are to look deeper within ourselves, understand and remember ourselves more. And what better container to do that than dive into deep vulnerability um, in that time and space. Keith says this beautifully. It's like the depth of the vulnerability people experience uh, is a direct correlation to the depth of what the facilitator starts out with. And so the invitation is always to dive super deep as a facilitator so that it opens up that invitation for others to do just that. Mm -hmm. And you touched on uh, community a couple of times in, in, in both of those answers. I wonder if you can kind of explain a little bit more about the importance of community. I think intuitively we all kind of talk about community being important. Have we become devoid of community over a period of time and now kind of community is elevated to a, you know, to a bigger level um, that can bring people more comfort or, you know, wh where does community tie in and how, do, how does vulnerability tie into community to accelerate it? Well, there, there was a real wonderful book written, gosh, it was in the 80s, I bet, maybe 90s. It's called Bowling Alone. It was a sociological study of the degradation of, of formal tribes in our life. Church groups, clubs, social clubs, they used to be meaningful. Like what, when I graduated from college in the late 80s, what club you joined was meaningful. And it defined your tribe, it defined a peer set, it defined a, a, sub, a support structure, church groups. You know, my, my father's men's group, my mom's knitting group, that, that kept her surviving and thriving after my father passed. And we don't have those anymore. Those have, those have dissipated. And part of it was the globalization of work in the world, and part of it was transportation and information technology it's allowed us to disperse so we don't, we, don't, we don't have those. I mean, I suspect if we didn't have the economy that we have today and the, that we would still be living on our hometowns and the church would still be very meaningful in the same way that it was. Not that religion shouldn't be meaningful or not that spirituality shouldn't be meaningful. I literally mean the place of the church. So we've got to create those. And, and I think the, 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 Differentiating capability and what Tim and I do is we bring that into the workplace. You know, why not make work a place that replaces those institutions that have dissipated? 
you know, I, I always say when I was a kid, I wanted to be a minister, but the blessing is that I have people five days a week, not one. I mean, why not make people commit to each other deeply and change the way we relate? Because I know the cascading effect. I know that when we have heard from our clients, they say that as a result of the work we do, they're better parents, they're better spouses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to add that um, I think about, especially from the medicine side of things, you know, many have said that it's a very strong correlation to the hero's journey. And in the hero's journey, it's a lot of us and ourselves um, going through that. And while we're more than capable of doing that, how amazing does it feel when we know and feel that others who speak our language, probably from very similar backgrounds of an entrepreneurial or startup or exec uh, background, are going through just that very similar hero's journey. And we, uh, those who have experienced psychedelic uh, work, also realize that the ceremony and the hero's journey doesn't end just when the last cup is drank or the ceremony is closed. The ceremony of life uh, is still continuing. And so even when we come back to our homes, we're still going through that journey um, and, and things open up. And so to have that community of people who speak that language, who drank that same cup as you, who sat in that sacred space with you, feels immensely supportive for that continuation of that hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it it comes down to relationships, as I've always imagined it, or the word that I come back to when I think of that, that strength is is the strength of relationships. And uh, a friend from one of the communities similar to you guys we were speaking about, um, from an indigenous background, their their whole way of looking at things is is relationships. Everything in the world is based on a relationship and systems and systems working together. So for me, when I was reading through the work that you guys do, it was that foundational relationship building of a strong ecosystem. And um, I love the term co-elevation because really that's that's what that says to me. It's like I'm looking at this relationship from a collaborative standpoint, from an uplifting standpoint, and and how can we use these tools and modalities to unlock relationships that have maybe been closed and build new ones and strengthen new ones. So yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for diving into that. Well, you know, and the relationship that I have with Tim hmm. is so joyful in my life. We, you know, we're, we're business partners. We work in the same organization and we're family. Mm -hmm. Truly. I can't tell you how many times I or other business executives rolled their eyes when founders or entrepreneurs would talk about family in the workplace. And, and I, by the way, I'm very resolute in not using that term loosely. I'd like for Aussie Greenlight and Greenlight Psychedelics. Actually, I would like for Aussie Greenlight to be the family that Greenlight Psychedelics is. But the work in even my own organization, our own organization, the work at Aussie Greenlight isn't as advanced. You know, we obviously don't have a policy where everybody has to be plant-based in their therapy there. And I can tell there's a difference. There is a difference. So, you know, I look at what we've built in Greenlight Psychedelics and I, you know, personally want to spend more and more time there, but I want the world to spend more and more time there. That's why we do what we're doing, both in terms of our work to advance companies in the psychedelic space, because we believe so strongly that as they grow, the world will be impacted by them. And also, you know, our work um, with non-psychedelic companies, you know, we're, we're unabashed in our evangelization of what it's done for us as individuals. Firstly, when I, for, I 
declared this many times in my past interviews, and when I heard this first with Keith, I was like, wow, that's very, very unique and, and interesting that there's a, there's a similarity there. Um, I first declared this when I was probably like four or five years old. I was in the back of my mom's car. She was driving me home. She's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I either want to be a hotel manager uh, or a president, first Asian American president of the United States. And hotel manager, was, hotel manager <laughs> was just to take care of her, just to make sure like we had vacations and all that. Um, president of the United States was mainly derived from this idea that like ever since I was a young, uh, young boy, um, whenever I saw and, and was in the middle or heard uh, the arguments that um, resulted from my parents' divorce, um, where sometimes things got violent and police even came, it just hurt that there was such conflict. Um, and I've always asked myself, what could be the highest position to help alleviate uh, the suffering from conflicts that arise? So it comes from that purity and in that kind of young of an age uh, of, of how that uh, came up. I would say I actually thought about like, wow, what would be the first rule or first uh, guideline? I'll share one that's pretty far out there and then one that's a little bit more grounded. The, the far out there one, actually Graham Hancock said this. He said, all politicians should drink ayahuasca at least 10 times before taking office. Whether it's ayahuasca 10 times or psilocybin journey five times, whatever it is, they experience this. Now, it's not a, it's not a cult-like kind of thing to say more than it is the opportunity to tap into your heart and to believe and understand that divisiveness and separation is just an illusion. And that the system that we currently have right now is very propagating that separation, which creates all this frustration and, 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 and difference of, of opinions, which can be celebrated, and the choice to come back to oneness or an under, mutual understanding alignment is what I hope the, the ultimate uh, intention is. On the more grounded side, uh, one thing that I've adopted a lot that I would hope and, and really spread throughout the world is adopting nonviolent communication. I think a lot of our conflict and separation comes from how we communicate. So if we learn the, the communication of life, which is nonviolent communication, I think that could be immensely powerful. Um, for those who haven't heard about it, feel free to take a look at the book, Nonviolent Communication. Um, I think that will teach a lot of how we approach our own relationships as well as uh, professionally. For me, it was born from a misunderstanding of what that role was. For some reason, I thought that being the governor of Pennsylvania would have been a, a, a platform for me to help save jobs in Pennsylvania. And what I found out over time was a better platform is actually where I am right now. Not even in one of the companies, but bringing a different way to, for all of the companies to elevate the way we work. I, I have a research institute called Go Forward to Work. It's like, let's not come out of this pandemic and go back to work. Let's use this as an inflection point and go forward to work. So I've always been at the cutting edge of thinking about how do you re-engineer the workplace as a platform for tra personal transformation. You know, if I were the president of the United States today, the first thing I would do is I would for sure sit in ceremony with my cabinet <laughs> and I would invite after the first sit, but I would then invite the leaders of the opposing party to mm. sit with us and the empathy and the potential for bridging and reconciling as team and as community would be, would be immense. And then, then I would, then I would ask my allies and my foes. And eventually we'd get to the stage where we didn't address problems 
from the perspective of assumption of continuation of problems. Um, we'd start mm -hmm. to see solutions. We'd start to see light in the world. You know, something that might be a little bit more practical is I would start to bring the principles of AA into the world without the need to have a diagnosed addiction. I feel that we've all been wounded and harmed in our insecurities and our upbringings, and we've got a lot of healing to do. And whether you sit in ceremony using indigenous plant medicine that's been around for hundreds and thousands of years, or whether or not you utilize the strength of community, which did bond us together as society, I would start rebuilding that in a way that is just about peer-to-peer -peer support. I'd bring the country back together again through healthy peer-to-peer -peer support in, in communities of no crosstalk, no judgment, just listening and support, which is the basis of the 12 steps. Amazing. I think this is a, a perfect place to, to end off. Um, so Tim, Keith, thank you so much for being generous with your time. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure, truly. Thank you, thank you. It's these conversations that highlight the emerging new world of psychedelics and allow us to speak to both the pioneers and the new age innovators, shaping the current culture of this exciting space. In every episode, we hope to help you, the listeners, connect the dots and be a part of the conversation that is super psychedelic. If you like what you heard, you can rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.